I'd like now to introduce our speaker uh, for today, uh, Dr. Susan McDaniel. Uh, Susan is a uh, Canadian sociologist and social demographer with active interest in social policy. Her research areas are wide, including the life course, demographic aging, generational relations, family change, and the social impacts of technology. A fellow of the Royal Society of Canada, author of seven books and research monographs and over 170 research articles and book chapters, Dr. McDaniel arrived last summer from the University of Utah after periods of time at the Universities of Waterloo and Windsor and for a longer period of time at the University of Alberta where it was my pleasure to first meet Susan. Dr. McDaniel is the Prentice Research Chair in Global Population and Economy, Director of the Prentice Institute and Professor of Sociology at the University of Lethbridge. Having worked again closely with Susan over the past many months, I can attest to the energy and vision that she has brought to the Institute. Her talk today is going to be, is entitled, You've Got to Start Young, Aging in Canada and the U.S., something that I think uh, we're all very much going to be uh, interested in hearing about. And so with no further ado, I want to turn it over to uh, Susan McDaniel. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's uh, very nice to be here. I've been impressed with uh, SACPA uh, since I've been in, at, in Lethbridge, I must say, and before, because uh, when they were trying to lure me here from the University of Utah, where I was quite happy, so I had to be lured here, uh, I said, well, what is the community like? Is there a town gown issue? And SACPA was mentioned, and so I'm delighted that I finally get to meet you and come here to give this talk. So thank you for the invitation, and thank you, Trevor, for the, for the introduction. My talk today... Um, which I'm going to launch right into, is a bit ironic, and I've told the media this in several media interviews right now. That's why there are those little uh, cute quotation marks around, you've got to start young. I took this title from, uh, from uh, uh, some, some media interviews that I heard with financial planners, uh, sort of shaking their fingers at people, saying, well, your problem is you didn't start young enough to save. Well, you will see as we go along that you can start young enough to save, and this is not a financial planning talk. Believe me, I don't do that. don't know how to do that. Um, but but uh, you can start very young to save, but the context in which you live as an individual shift. And so this uh, reminds me a bit of a cookbook. And the cookbook that I will quote, uh, let me, how do I move this forward, is The Joy of Cooking. Now, no aspersions on this because I think it's quite a fine cookbook. But when I first was learning to cook, I opened this cookbook, and the first recipe I encountered said, yesterday you will have purchased these ingredients. And they would have list them all. And I would think, come on. You know, I'm a graduate student. Yesterday I purchased no such ingredients. I have these ingredients here before me. What the heck am I going to cook? So this, you've got to start young reminds me of this joy of cooking cookbook uh, in, in, the sense, in that one sense. So please understand, I'm not uh, casting aspersions here. Then there are the images that surround aging, which are quite frightful, actually. The notion, that, and this is another talk that I've been involved in, but the notion of aging, and I'm not talking about getting old. I'm talking about aging from 30 to 35. You know, it can be aging because aging is a lifelong process, uh, are amazing. 
with modeling, for example, you're over the hill when you're 30. Uh, and some, in some careers, you're over the hill when you're 50. Uh, others, you're over the hill when you're 80. But the notion of aging gracefully is kind of interesting. So I love this quote. If I had just one wish, I'd live my life in reverse. Uh, this reminds me of a woman I interviewed who was 85. And she said, you know, I never knew anybody that lived this long. Everybody I knew died before 85. So if I had known I was going to live to be 85, I would have done things entirely differently. She's not talking about rational planning. She's talking about kicking up her heels and doing all kinds of things she wanted to do. So that's what you got to start young, really, with. But here, this person says, if I had one wish, I'd live my life in reverse. Start out at 85, but as I grew younger, I'd get better looking, which is a pretty good deal. I'd have a midlife crisis, switch jobs, and start a family with kids who were also born at 85. That's how to age gracefully. I'm going, I'm, I'm going backwards here. So the key question, so let me tell you, this is a research study, and it's a pilot study, and I'm pleased to tell you that uh, just at the end of last week, um, I received funding to do a major study on this. So this is a pilot study. Nonetheless, it's nationally representative, but I'll tell you how the bigger study is going to work in a moment. And uh, It's a cross-border research team. I didn't list all the team members, but I'm principal investigator on this study. The key questions are this. Is aging the same in Canada and the U.S.? And here we're looking at context, and the context I want to look at is not us trotting through life. Uh, but we live longer than Americans. I don't know whether you know that, but there's a considerable gap in our life expectancy compared to Americans. We live longer. Whether we live better is another question, but we live longer. Uh, so contexts clearly matter to the length of our lives, but they also matter to how we pass through our life courses. Uh, economic situations, labor markets, family circumstances, living arrangements, inclusion, uh, whether we're isolated or engaged in social participation, all that matters greatly. Here we go, negative images. Now, lest you think I'm only talking about women here, I, women are, talk a lot about women uh, and aging. Uh, the, the, the Oscar Wilde notion that a man's face is his autobiography and for a woman it's her, his, a great, her greatest work of fiction. You've heard that one. Well, this is another negative one, so I, but I'll, I'll mention the men in just a minute, so don't feel left out. Uh, see your mother on holidays, not every time you look in the mirror. Well, that means that if you just take this product, whatever it is, and apply it to your face, you won't look like your mother anymore. Well, good luck with that. But the notion is, the image here is very negative. It means that your mother doesn't look good. And many of our mothers uh, look great, you know. So this concept of bias against aging is very much there. Uh, and, and it's a problem in our society because we see aging in negative terms. So here's how we see older men. Uh, this is what, what a fisherman becomes in older years. Um, so I just don't want you to think I'm being sexist here, only talking about women. The focus in this particular study is on those people in midlife. And for purposes of this study, I'm talking about people aged 45 to 64. It's arbitrary. You cut into the population at any age. And it's in Canada in the early 1990s through 2010. Some of the interviews uh, with people are still in the field right now. So the good thing about the economic situation, there's got to be a good thing somewhere in it, is that I had interviews in the field in both Canada and the U.S. as the economy was tanking. 
So this makes for very interesting responses from people in this age group about what they experience and how they expect aging to be for them. So it examines how lives look as people grow older and what shapes their prospects and how that compares with those older and younger now. So we're actually moving this through time. So we ask people, 45 to 64, which is a wide age bracket, what's life like for your older relatives now compared to what it, you think it's going to be like for you when you're older? And what do you think it's going to be like when your kids, however old they are, reach their older years? And boy, did that end up having some interesting responses. The specific focus in this talk, I've limited it to three things. Economic circumstances, which is important in the economic crisis, income inequalities, and market government supports. And I won't talk much about each one, but I want to talk about those specific areas. The data come from uh, several sources, and I won't dwell on that, uh, wide sources in Canada and the U.S. to provide the context, and then analysis of two waves of nationally representative samples at two points in time in the two countries. So you can imagine four, four points then and then in-depth interviews with people in uh, two socioeconomic groups in Canada and the U.S. from 2008 to 2010. Those interviews are still in the field now. So the first context I want to talk about is economic circumstances. And this is really interesting because a lot of people don't understand how the, the context shapes the individual actions. We like to think of ourselves as in charge, you know, we're saving, we're doing all the right things, but the context shifts. And so we say, darn it, you know, I planned everything, but the context shift. We don't realize how it's a kind of a waltz between us and the context in which we live. So in those, in this regard, I want to talk about three things, all in comparative context. Rising costs, Oops. Rising costs, stagnant wages, savings challenges, and spending challenges. The differences between the United States and Canada emerge very, very quickly in this discussion. In Canada, we have had pretty close to stagnant earnings. Our earnings have increased a little bit. We're talking on average a tiny bit. In the United States, in the same period, they've declined. So that's another very important difference. Uh, but the rise in consumer prices have eaten up our earnings. So the notion is we have had stagnant wages. Why does that matter so much? We'll get to that in a moment. In Canada, the, serve, the, the savings challenge has been huge. Net worth increased for our midlife people, but also indebtedness substantially. Uh, de debt is very much higher than it was in 1999. This is what people warn us about. But debt in the United States is a whole different kettle of fish. In the U.S., we see tremendous changes in the debt ratio, and this only goes to 2004. It's changed very dramatically since then. Uh, but particularly for people in the younger midlife groups, the people 45 to 54, and that's where we see their uh, percentage in, uh, in mortgage arrears increasing, and that has skyrocketed lately. So those people in midlife are, are at risk of losing their houses. They're in mortgage arrears, and they're thinking about retirement. So Freedom 55 isn't happening if you're in mortgage arrears. Uh, if you're a 45 to 64. So even if savings are managed, new challenges arise. In the U.S., they're sharply lowering home worth. And most everybody has knows about this from watching the media. 
foreclosures are skyrocketing. They're coming in waves. And when I was in the U.S. in the past two years, I saw this happening in very, very good neighborhoods. Uh, but foreclosures are increasing now again because unemployment is increasing. And unemployment in the United States is considerably higher than in Canada. It's above 10% right now. Uh, there are bank closures where people are, are losing their, 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 their funds in banks. There's less retirement savings by Americans, less job security, and as I mentioned, a higher unemployment rate. In Canada, the situation uh, is different, but both of us have less secure private investment, most of us know that, and less uh, savings for retirement than we did before. Spending challenges, huge, huge difference. This is monumental. Mortgage arrears are up 79% in the state since 2007. 79%. In Canada, they're up 50%, but the degree of mortgage arrears is less. So that means the risk of us having our homes foreclosed is less in Canada than it is in the United States. Bankruptcies are higher in the United States than in Canada, and the main reason for bankruptcies in the United States is health problems. So that means that even if you're insured in the United States, if you have a serious health problem, you could go bankrupt because your insurance is inadequate to deal with that serious health problem. So income inequalities is the second context I want to talk about. And this is the focus of a major part of this study, but I won't dwell on it. Bob Rubin, who was... Um, a financial person working, he was a chair of Citigroup and an advisor to Citigroup, and he was U.S. Treasury Secretary. He's now being questioned uh, 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 with in, the, in the, 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 the hearings in the United States about the causes of the financial crisis. But listen to what he says. It's quite interesting. This is from the US, former U.S. Treasury Secretary. From today's vantage point, inequality looks like a bigger problem than economic growth. Now picture what that means. Just a quick, a quick example of what it means. If you have growing gaps in income inequality and you have stagnant wages, what do people who can't afford to buy things do when they can't take it out of their wages? They buy it on credit. And the more you buy it on credit, the deeper you get in a hole. So income inequalities are really at the root of a lot of the economic crisis. And that's what he's getting at here. This uh, study has been said uh, by policy people to be, in both countries, to be quite propitious because uh, we are looking at the largest generation uh, that's ever been seen, the baby boomers. But I emphasize that this is not a baby boom study. It crosses into other age groups so we can compare with other cohorts. The alarmism about demographic aging, about which I've written extensively, uh, that it's overplayed, uh, and been quoted recently in the Globe and Mail on that, uh, and the dire policy implications of that need, need uh, addressing empirically, and that's what we're trying to do in this study. The period of the post-war, post-World War II, um, has seen a huge diversity. Diversity in um, immigration, diversity in lifestyles, diversity in family life, every kind of diversity you can imagine, and that hasn't been really studied. It's kind of a special period, uh, and that's what we're looking at. But the most important reasons for this study are on the inequality side. <clears throat> Sharp income uh, distribution shifts in both the U.S. and Canada. <clears throat> Excuse me. And these income distribution shifts have impacts <coughs> on life expectancies. Sorry. <coughs> I think it's just water or coffee I drank because I don't have a cold or anything. Anyway, 
Why do inequalities matter? Well, they matter in our bones because we say things in kindergarten. That's not fair. That person got more than we did. We have this built into us, this sense of justice and fairness and inequality. But it's also the case that societies with greater inequalities, regardless of their level of economic development, this is a really important point to understand because it's kind of counterintuitive. If you have greater income inequalities, you have lower life expectancies. So the United States has almost the greatest income inequalities in the world, and it has lower life expectancies than a lot of places that are not as well developed. Life expectancy, for example, in the United States and in Cuba differ only by a hair. Very, very similar life expectancies. Now, you wouldn't think that because you think we're talking about completely different levels of, of, of socioeconomic development, but that is the reality. Life expectancies in Canada are much higher than they are in the United States, and that gap seems to be increasing. So life, the concept of inequalities also affects how we construct our systems that surround us. So in other words, we said a long time ago in Canada, well, maybe not we in this room, but somebody brilliant said um, that, you know, health is a risk we all face, ill health. So if somebody falls off their tractor or experiences cancer or heart attack, we say that's not necessarily their fault. We should pool our risks and, and protect people from that. And that's why we have national health care, national health insurance. And we kind of take it for granted now. But in fact, it was our sense of inequality and, and that we shouldn't have those inequalities that led us to develop that public scheme. <clears throat> in terms of, <clears throat> excuse me, in terms of the explanatory framework with respect to, um, with respect to inequality, we can all understand this very quickly, and so I won't dwell on it. If you are born with a silver spoon in your mouth, or as I mentioned about one previous president of the United States, born with a silver front end loader in your mouth, um, you're likely to think that you'll do better as you get older because you were born with a lot of privileges. Privileges accumulate, and disadvantage accumulates, but they don't accumulate in the same way so that the consequences of advantage are not the inverse of, of disadvantage. So that means disadvantage really accumulates very quickly. And it, <clears throat> excuse me, it accumulates, and we found this out now recently, it accumulates in the brains of poor children. So that means if you don't have enough stimulation or enough food, your brain development is impaired by a very early age. So in other words, it really becomes part of our structure. Uh, whereas boredom with a front end loader in your mouth, what you tend to do is say, well, gee, you know, I got to third base on my own because I'm so clever and smart. When in fact you don't realize you had this boost from having this silver spoon or silver front end loader or whatever that gave you all these kinds of advantages. So, so these things are not, not the same. I do want to talk about this last point just briefly, that cumulative inequality leads to premature mortality. So we immediately have a methodological problem. Now think of this. If you start slicing the population and you say, I'm only going to study those people over 80, and I'm going to look at how aging affects them, there's a whole p bunch of people who were born poor who are dead by that age. So you're looking selectively if you're looking at those over 65 or over 80 because of premature mortality for those who are disadvantaged. So that's why I'm looking at 45. But even then, 
in this study, and I won't, I won't dwell on this, but even then, in this study, we see people who are disadvantaged dying at an earlier age, much earlier age, than people who are privileged. So this socioeconomic gradient plays into how we, how we live. Uh, income distribution shifts in Canada, this is amazing to, to look at. The top 1% of income earners in Canada, I'm sure you've seen these data, uh, grew by 100% in the past couple of decades, and the top tenth of 1% of income earners in Canada grew by 260%. The rich are really getting richer, but they're getting more rich in the States. So the income distribution is greater in the States than it is here, but it's not because the poor are getting poorer. The poor are actually not getting poorer. They're staying the same. It's that the rich are getting so much richer. And so that means that there's a lot of income inequality. Uh, and there are lower taxes for the highest earners. This shows over time from 1960 to 2004 how the highest earners' taxes have gone down, where the rest of us have pretty well stayed the same. Um, trends in income inequalities. The only reason why I want to show this is because you can begin to see here that the U.S. and Mexico and South Africa are not hugely different in terms of income inequalities, whereas Japan is um, in a different league, very minimal income inequalities in Japan. So, so we can begin to see that. We don't usually look at it that way. And this just shows the growth in income inequality since the 50s, which you know goes straight up, however you define it, goes straight up. This is very interesting. Growing disparities, as I mentioned before, uh, you can see here that uh, life expectancy at birth is higher for those who are most deprived. But the gap, the gap between the wiggly curves at the bottom end from most deprived to least deprived has been widening. As inequality increases, each socioeconomic group has, is healthier than the one above it, and the, the spread widens. There are more disparities in mid to later life than in any other group, so they accumulate essentially around the middle, like weight. Um, quite important to think about. This is something also that, well, you think, think about how that works. Suicide, uh, and this is something that I had verified at a policy dialogue that Trevor organized at the Prentice Institute, um, which it was quite an interesting experience uh, because academics seldom get an opportunity to sit around and talk about things that are in different disciplines. But uh, the, there's tremendous uh, rise in suicide among midlife people. And this is hidden because we talk about suicides among other groups, Aboriginal youth, uh, teens, um, older people, but we miss this. Um, it's in fact amazing in, the United, in Canada that the suicide rate among those 50 to 54 is actually considerably higher than it is among teens. So something might be going on there, uh, and my argument is that successful aging may add pressures. The notion that people might say, and there are all kinds of reasons for suicide, but people might say, gee, you know, at this age I expect to have accomplished more, or I thought I'd be heading into old age in a different way, or I haven't been successful at aging. My question is, what is non-successful aging? Does that mean you have a health problem? Does it mean you're dead? What does it mean? It's very interesting. To, or does it mean you don't show your age, like, you know, the woman who doesn't want to see her mother when she looks in the mirror? And if you show your age, you're not successful? It's a very interesting concept, this successful aging concept. Um, 
in terms of market supports, and I'm almost ready to wrap this up, in terms of markets and state supports, Canada, uh, and this is not very well known, the public system in Canada is in very good shape. It was reformed several years ago. We have the Canada Pension uh, Investment Corporation. So what, what's happening there is investments have, have been affected a little bit, but the fact is that it's doing far better than it was before when that bulk of the Canada Pension Plan was simply given to the provinces as, as uh, low-interest loans and never, never recouped. So it's better to invest it. Uh, and we're doing better than we were before. The market pensions in Canada, private pensions, are another story entirely. That is a very worrisome thing uh, for people who have private pensions. And you can't live on Canada Pension Plan. It's a small amount, so you can't live on it. It's expected to supplement things. In the U.S., there's another, a whole different world again. There's a move to self-managed pension plans. So that means that you say to somebody who has never graduated high school, here's your money, you invest it wisely. And, you know, people haven't got a clue what to do. They're losing money. They don't know what to do with it. They're putting it in the mattress. So the notion is that this is public pensions. You're supposed to be self-managing. Social Security is President Obama's next challenge after health care because it's very shaky in the United States, has not been reformed. So when students say to us, and they often do, we're in trouble because public pensions are in trouble in Canada, they aren't. They are in the U.S., but we can't take that knowledge to heart here. Uh, and market pensions in the United States are rare to start with and really shaky, uh, even shakier than they are here. Um, this is from interviews, and I want to give you a little flavor of what people actually say. So these are people's actual words. The summary of this, before I tell you their actual words, is, and I found this absolutely mind-blowing, knock my socks off because it doesn't, it's not consistent with our images of our American self-images, that Americans define risk in, 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 as they age in terms of genetic inheritance, serious illness, fear of losing independence, uh, whereas Canadians, on the other hand, are more likely to see risks in terms of stress or attitudes that they say then they can, they can work to control. So the image we have and Americans have is we're in charge, you know, bootstraps and all that, and Canadians aren't like that. It's actually the opposite in this research, and I find that fascinating. So um, what do they specifically mention? And these are people 45 to 64. Americans all mentioned, without exception, concerns about health insurance, every single one of them. They're preoccupied with it. The financial crisis added to it. They just say, my goodness, I don't have health insurance. If I do have it, it's not adequate. What the heck am I going to do as I age? Canadians mentioned that they really didn't know how to be prepared as they aged, but they all felt positive because they had public health insurance. Every single person mentioned that. <clears throat> okay, here are some questions. What about your older and younger relatives? How do you see their later years compared to your own? Here's an, an American. This is just a sample. I can't see how my children will have it as good as my parents do now. There's just too much trouble right now for them to save for retirement. They're looking at the context. Uh, Canadian says, I really don't know. My kids have more education than I did and maybe more opportunity. My parents worked very hard and are now suffering for it. But maybe I and my kids are getting the benefit of that. They, they, they conceptualize it totally differently. So I thought I'd throw in this cartoon because this is about the, you know, the generation that was um, uh, protesting love beads and 
love sex and rock and roll. Um, get out there and stick it to the man, honey. Uh, just don't get caught doing it because we can't afford to retire yet. So he's still got this 60s mentality. He's going with a sign, but, you know, just don't get caught. Uh, so this is why it's hard for boomers to age gracefully. In conclusion, the response to our two key questions, is aging an equal challenge in Canada and the U.S.? No. The flows resulting from demographic aging, the size of the baby boom, all that, um, which receives a lot of attention, is, matters far, far less than the context in which we age in Canada and the United States, which are very different. For most in, Canada, in the U.S., aging is much, much tougher. And by that I mean not only the people in midlife who are going into old age, but the people who are in old age now and the children of the midlifers who will be aging. It's much tougher throughout for them than it is for us. Now, that doesn't mean it's a piece of cake for us. I don't want to imply that. But this is a comparative study, so we're benchmarking one country on the other. The pre-boomers in both countries, and these are people be born before 1946, um, in both countries are in better health than the boomers. Now, that is very interesting. Why that's so? Well, there are a number of, of explanations. One is that those people grew up and old in times of lesser income inequalities and more risk insurance. In other words, it wasn't as shaky a world as it is now. The toll of income inequalities however, is yet to come. And that's not only for the boomers and not because of their size, but because the income inequalities are so huge that those will translate into serious, serious challenges yet to be seen. And U.S. midlifers are at greater risks than in Canada. So in conclusion, how do context matters? Context and their shifts matter hugely. A perfect storm is really upon us, particularly in the United States. We're recovering from it faster in Canada. Negative economic situation all around. Vastly growing in income inequality shift toward market benefits that not everybody can benefit from. U.S. midlifers, as they age, will face and are facing numerous challenges not related to demographic aging. Canadian midlifers do face marginally better prospects, but the issue of insecure private pensions is a huge challenge. Uh, and chronic care uh, for, for older people is a huge challenge because that's not covered by Medicare. So starting young is insufficient, even if it were possible to anticipate so many contextual changes like that darn cookbook that said you'll buy things yesterday. Societies always age as they progress. The only societies that don't are those with very high birth rates, very high death rates, and low quality of life. So to quote Mark Twain here, the only thing worse than aging is not aging. <laughs> and by golly, he's got that right, despite the negative images. Aging is a sign of societal success and of individual success in life, too. One of my colleagues at the University of Utah described people who age as escapees, which is great because you escape all those possible things. You can imagine it's going like, a, like through a video game. You escape that hazard and this hazard, and, and there you are. You're aging. It's wonderful. How to live to be 100. It's beautiful, isn't it? Thank you. And here's my contacts if you wish to contact me. Thank you very much for your time.